Genesis chapter 13 is where I'd like you to turn this morning. Genesis 13. Faith's response to strife. Fascinating passage of scripture. Uh, the, The core theme of it is an issue of conflict and strife that relates to finances and then a resolution to that strife emerges in the story. Okay? There's conflict and strife. There is a debate over possessions, if you will, material things, temporary things. And then there is a resolution to that conflict that emerges in the story through a man who chooses to act in ways that are directed towards resolving strife and conflict. Most of us can probably think back to a time in our lives when resources were thin, when it was tough to get ends financially to meet. Perhaps it was when you were just getting started after marriage. Perhaps the first mortgage payments, school bills, college bills, children being born. Or you can remember tough times when you were growing up in your family of birth. Seasons of struggle. Some of us have seen serious poverty and wanted to do something. Along the way, we encounter things like this. These kinds of struggles on the road of life. And many of us are tempted in those circumstances to think, I'd like to try rich or a little more for a little while. Okay, we get, we get tired, we get weary of the struggle. And sometimes we're just thinking, God, you know, I'd like to live on the other side of the coin for just a little while. Because we have a fundamental belief in our culture. Our fundamental belief is something like this. Money can solve my problems. Okay? That a lot of times we're thinking at the root of my struggle is a lack of resources. And if I had more resources, I would have less problems. And so there is a multi-billion dollar industry in America that flies on that false assumption. Okay? It's the gambling industry. Lottery tickets. They're the solution to everything. In fact, I'm fascinated that the federal government hasn't come up with a lottery system to help us get out of our debt crisis in the current situation. Maybe some of us should email that in. But people spend billions of dollars every year. Why? For the chance, minuscule chance, to become wealthy, to have more, or in in the people's way of thinking, to have enough to meet my needs to minimize strife and conflict and struggle in my life. I ask you this question this morning. How would a winning lottery ticket affect you? Have you ever thought about that? And I'll just tell you up front, I don't think as Christians that it's appropriate for us to play the lottery because the driving force behind it is that if I get more for a little, for a lot less, then I will be happy. It'll bring peace and joy in my life. The question we really need to ask ourselves is, how would it affect me if that kind of uh, substantial resource came into my life? Would I trust God like I do today? Would I pray like I do today? Would I depend on God for my daily bread? And I think the answer to that question is fairly easy to answer. And I would challenge you to do this. If you want to do something interesting, go online and search the stories of lottery winners after they struck it big. Okay, go search the life story of people who hit it big in the lottery. It is, I'm going to tell you this, it is one of the saddest things that you will possibly read. One woman, and and ladies for the record, there's one woman in this series of stories that has a horrific and there's three men. Okay, not that you're surprised by that. 
Evelyn Adams, 1985 and 1986, one year, and then miraculously the next year, hit the lottery. $5.4 million, lost it all to gambling within a few years. Okay, thinking that if I get it, and, you, and two times around, another man in 1988 named William Budd Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. In his recollection, he says, that was the start of my problems. An ex-girlfriend sued him for the share of winnings and won. His brother hired a hitman to kill him, hoping to inherit some of the winnings. Other relatives bugged him constantly for money. Within one year, Post was $1 million in debt and filed for bankruptcy. He now lives on food stamps for $450 a month. Here's what he says. He says, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. William Hurt in 1989 won $3.1 million in the Michigan lottery. He was on top of the world. Fast forward two years later, his wife divorced him. He lost the custody of his children, charged with attempted murder, and, and wrestled with a drug addiction that was so bad that it cost him his entire fortune. William Harrell, working as a shelf stocker at Home Depot, hit the $31 million lottery jackpot in 1997. At first, life was good with Bill, buying a ranch, six other homes, and some new cars. Like many others who win the lottery, he was unable to simply say no when people asked him for a handout. Later in life, he divorced his wife, eventually committed suicide, because the stress was apparently too much to handle for this lottery winner. Perhaps the only thing not in dispute about his life and death is the jarring impact of money. Okay, that's a secular writer saying this in a news article. Perhaps the only thing not in dispute about his life and death is the jarring impact of money. It may not have caused his problems, but it certainly didn't solve them. Shortly before his death, he confided in his financial advisor that winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to him. Amazing, isn't it? We're going to come into a story this morning where Abraham, in a sense, and, and Lot, hit the jackpot. While they're down in Egypt, abundance comes to them. Enormous blessings come to them. We come out of chapter 12 with the, this, this victory of faith. Abraham leaves his homeland, goes down into the land of Canaan. Then we find the failure of faith when there is a famine in the land. And down to Egypt they go where he lies and destroys his testimony. And one of the lessons that begins to emerge in the story of Abraham is the people of faith can fail. We pick up the story in chapter 12 and verse 20 where Abraham is now sent out of Egypt. He's expelled by Pharaoh, who is exceedingly angry with him for lying at him. He is retracing his steps, and he is repenting of this sin that is present in his life. He's returning with a wife that is exceedingly unhappy, more than likely because of his, her, his treatment of her. But he's coming back with this blessing. Verse 20 of chapter 12 says, Abraham is returning with all that he had. And if, you, and if you go back into, I think, verse 16, you'll find that in Egypt, God had blessed Abraham with an abundance of things at the expense of his wife, as we looked at last week. When we come into chapter 13, we begin reading in verse 1. It says, 
So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. That is back to the place he had left with his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him. And that you can say parenthetically is an, is an, an ominous type of a statement. Okay, that sows tension, if you will, into the story line. He had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev he went up, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there he called on the name of the Lord. Okay, so where are we? We're back in the land of promise. Abraham has acquired and is overwhelmed with enormous wealth. Lot has also become a wealthy man in this process. So they come back into the land, and Abraham is now going to face a test. The test is directly related to the material blessings that, if you will, have fallen into his life. He went down to Egypt with average wealth. He has come out an exceedingly wealthy man. His prosperity is increasing. And the thought that came to my mind as I thought about that was I thought of Paul in Philippians 4 and verse 12. You know what Paul has to say? Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. Right? When I have a lot and when I have a little, I have learned. I needed to learn this lesson. Abraham is going to learn the same kind of lesson. Okay, what is the fundamental lesson? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, that's the fundamental lesson, meaning Paul says, I've lived in poverty, I've lived with enormous wealth. What I learned in both sets of circumstances is that God is enough. He is adequate and he is sufficient. But there are times that God chooses to bless people with wealth. There are times that God chooses to bless people with more than they need. This is one of those circumstances. You can study the Bible and look at the story of Job and find that Job was a man who was blessed with more than he needed. Solomon certainly falls into that category. Esther experiences enormous financial prosperity in her time away from the land. Ladies in the New Testament, you'll find, who were able to, ha- to uh, sponsor a house church in their home. Probably people of more abundance than the average person. So prosperity at times will come into the life of the people of God. Abraham's wealth came from this sojourn down into Egypt. He comes out with everything that he had, which implies, I think very strongly, that he is experiencing a season of blessing. That blessing in verse 6 leads to trouble. Okay, and let's just, let's just read this. Actually, let's pick up in verse 5. It says, Now Lot was moving about with Abram. I'm sorry, now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. Okay, and this is where the strife now starts to rise. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Okay, now here's the first observation we can make from this text, okay? Material blessings can cause strife, okay? We can get into it over temporal things, okay? They can become so strongly attractive to us that we will quarrel and debate over them. So in verse 7, we find this word that's 
interesting, quarreling arose between Abram's and Lot's herdsmen. The word here is something like strife. It's complaint and counter-complaint, okay? Kind of like what happens with our children when they're younger, okay? And sometimes when they're older, all right? Where's this? Here's a complaint. Here's a counter-complaint. And they're just going back and forth at it. Okay, now the question is this. How does a man of faith respond to something like that? Okay, how do you resolve a tension that arises in the context of blessing? Where do you go with that? What do you do with it? Okay, and I think one of the truths that emerges out of this rising of strife in the midst of blessing is something like this. If I trust in prosperity, in material things, I will cling to it and I will war over it. Okay, James 4.1 says this. From where do quarrels and fighting come from? Okay, James's answer is, don't they arise from our selfish, personal desires that wage war amongst us? Okay, isn't it true that sometimes we trust so strongly in material things that we're willing to war over them? In what sense are we trusting in them? Okay, if you take, I think most pieces of American currency have something stamped on them. A, some have called it a warning sign. Okay, on every piece of money, you'll find a few words. They are these. In God, we trust. In God, we trust. Why is that there? Okay, why does the the mint put that on most pieces of U.S. currency? Why is that there? You know what the answer is for me? I really don't know. Okay, I mean, I'm not sure why they do it, but I'm glad that it's there. Why? Because it is a constant reminder on every piece of currency that this cannot satisfy. So it it amazes me that right on it is this warning. Okay, in God we trust. Why? Because we have a tendency to think that the material things are the things that are going to bring satisfaction and delight into our lives. We tend to trust in them. And that's why people will take enormous risks to get just a little bit more. What is their hope? Their hope is that when I get a little bit more, I'll be satisfied and striving will cease in my life. What do we find in this story? We find the exact opposite of that scenario to be true. Quarreling can arise. In this context, it does arise over material things. I believe it is why the writer of Proverbs in in chapter, in chapter 30 and verse 9 said this. He said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much, and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Now, what is the writer of Proverbs afraid of? You know what he's afraid of? He's afraid of a natural tendency that arises in most of us to want to trust invisible things. Okay, to want to to find our stability and our security and our hope of peace in the presence of material things. His warning is, God, don't, don't give me more then I need, because if you do, I may have a tendency to trust in those things and ultimately to fight and quarrel over them. Blessings can create management problems in our life. It can happen in the workplace. It can happen in in the context of marriage where there's jealousy over who's spending what and workplaces over who's getting the most. All of us have experienced tensions in our lives or seen those tensions that revolve around material things. We are often willing to go to the mat over material possessions. But I want you to see why I believe God has allowed this quarrel, this struggle to come into Abraham's life. 
Okay? Look at why. And I think the answer is something like this. Because progress often occurs in the context of struggle. Okay? The advancement of God's plan for Abraham is going to be achieved. Not inhibited, but encouraged and achieved because of this struggle. You see, from the beginning of the story, bringing Lot with him is not something that God told him to do. We have no evidence in Scripture that Lot was even to be with Abraham. So that past decision is what? It's starting to come back to haunt him in some way. It's causing tension. It's a hanging chad in his life, if you will. That needs to be dealt with. And what is God doing? God's forcing the issue by giving them an abundance and blessing that is enormous and that raises a problem. Okay, the problem is that the land that they are on is no longer able to sustain them. Okay, verse 6 states that very clearly. They were not able to stay together. Why? Because their herds, uh, their need for pasture, all those sorts of things were creating conflict in their sphere of influence. And so Abraham is forced to deal with this strife. And what I want you to think about is this. I want you to ask yourself the question, what is the goal of the man of faith in a situation of conflict? Okay, what, is, what does Abraham desire to achieve more than anything else? Okay, and I think the answer to that question is found in verse 8. It says, so Abraham said to Lot, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Okay, so he appeals to the fact that they are family by God's design. Okay, and what's Abraham's goal? He wants the quarreling to stop. Okay, and here's the question that comes up. When you want quarreling to stop, the question you are going to have to wrestle with is this. What am I willing to do to see this come to an end? Okay, and that, that's the question here. Abraham can say, hey, Lot, get out of here. You're not supposed to be here anyhow. Which would only what? Escalate the problem. Cause the strife between the herdsmen to increase. So Abraham comes with a very specific goal. He wants no more quarreling. He understands that peace is more important than temporal possessions. So the second lesson that emerges, number one, material blessings can cause strife. There could be tension with an increase of abundance. Okay? Second thought is this. The generous response of the believer resolves strife. Okay, Abraham is saying, I want this tension to die down. I want it to die out. And so he begins to take steps to resolve the conflict, to settle the strife that is present between he and Lot. I want to look at two thoughts. Number one is, how does Abraham respond to it? And then, how does Lot respond to it? Okay, so strife is present. Abraham takes the leadership responsibility, steps forward, and begins to seek a solution to the problem. How does Abraham approach it? And I think this is what Abraham does. Abraham takes on this attitude of generous humility. Generous humility. Now, keep in mind what Abraham could say. Okay? Who did God promise the blessing to? Who did God promise the land to? Who had God promised abundance to and a seed? Who? To Abraham. You know what Abraham could have done in this situation? Abraham could have said, I am going to stand for my rights. I'm going to tell you something. When that happens, okay, when we make our rights and our perspective and our desires the main thing, what happens? Does, it, does it, husbands and wives, does it, when you stand, I'm going to fight for my position on this situation. You find it, that just makes the ride even more pleasant. Okay? It just, oh, we're really having a good time now. 
Okay, the answer is no. Until someone finally stands up, and I mean in, the, in, in, in generous humility, in gracious humility, and says, you know what? I need to confess this wrong in my life. I need to confess my part to this situation. Or I need simply to act in a gracious way to help this person in my life who's struggling. Lot is struggling. The herdsmen are struggling. Abraham steps up to be the man of God who is going to practice a generous humility. And a humility that I believe is characterized by grace. How does it look? Here's how it looks, very simply. He does not demand what is his. That simple. Every parent in this room who has had more than one child knows the angst that you feel when your children quarrel. Right? It, it just, it stinks. Okay? It's just, when, when your kids are at it with each other, it's just, my tolerance for that is so very, very low that it's, it's for me in parenting, it was one of the things that I just, I sought to, to target. Not, I just, you, what, they're your kids. And here's what the Bible says. It says, how good and how pleasant it is, Psalm 130, I believe it is, when brothers dwell together in unity. There is something about watching your kids get along there's something about coming to the end of that one day, okay, when they got along all day and you, you look back over that trip or over that vacation or over that holiday and you think, I didn't have to correct my kids today, all right? And you realize that you should fall on your knees and do what Abraham did. You should fall on your knees and build an altar and say, God, thank you. Why? It's rare when that happens, but it is a glorious thing. You know what Abraham's, Abraham's saying? I don't want any quarreling. So I am willing to be generous and gracious in my response to this situation so that the quarreling dies out. I'm going to leave the outcome of this situation in the capable hands of God. That's the hard part for us, folks. Isn't it? If I take a hit, if I absorb the wrong and don't react and don't respond, I am forced to trust God with the outcome from that situation. And that's where most of us, quite frankly, I believe, struggle. Abraham gives Lot the best choice of the land and takes the leftovers. Okay, if your kids ever did that at dinner, you would be in total dismay and shock. All right, you would probably be calling for counseling to the pastor. I don't know what's happening with my kids. Okay, if they would say, no, you take what you want first. Okay, we're going to sit down and play Legos. Okay. You know, older son says to younger son. My brothers never did this to me, by the way. i got two brothers that are one and two years older than me. This never happened in my life where they said, Hey, Tim, you choose what you want first. I don't remember that ever happening in my life. Why? We have this natural tendency towards selfishness that if I don't get what's mine out of this situation and circumstance, what's going to happen? I don't know. Okay, and this is where we struggle. Trusting God with handling those circumstances. What do we tend to do? We tend to take it into our own hands and we create massive messes because of a failure to trust God. This text to me is so beautiful. Abraham's, let, let's not have any quarreling. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Question, what gives Abraham the right to do that? The whole land. You know what gives him the right to do that? God gave it to him. God gave him, he said, Abraham, when Abraham came in in Genesis 12, that whole land is yours. They have a quarrel, a strife that needs to be settled. G generous, gracious humility says what? It says, Lot, you take what you want. I'll take what's left. Okay? That is a, to me, that's a stunning statement. How could Abraham do that? Okay? And I want to come back and answer that question in one moment. 
Here's the question. What is motivating Abraham's response? Why is he responding in such gracious and generous ways? I think that's the question you have to answer as you look at this text. What would motivate someone to say who owns the whole thing? Hey, of what I own, you take what you want and just leave me whatever you feel like leaving me. It's stunning. I think the answers are threefold. One is grace. He is grateful for the blessings that he has received instead of getting what he deserved. Remember in Egypt, he lied to Pharaoh. He had received enormous financial blessings from Pharaoh in exchange for his wife. The lie is uncovered. The typical response of a Pharaoh would be this. You are a dead man. And that woman is staying in my harem and you're not getting her back. That would be the typical response. Abraham does not get what he deserved. Instead, what happens? Pharaoh says, verse 20 of chapter 12, take your wife and get out of here and take everything I've given you. Take all your stuff with you and take a lot too. Okay? He just, he's like, go, take it all. All right, Abraham is in a place of blessing that he does not deserve. He has been forgiven a sin, a high-handed sin against the king of Egypt. And he's escaping with his life. What is that? That's the protection of God. Why did that happen? Not because Abraham was so smooth, a good negotiator. No, it happened because the promise of God was on Abraham's life by grace. And he believed the promise, embraced it. And now God was protecting his life. I think another reason, and, 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 and I think something that emerges out of that kind of grace, Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, Abraham has been blessed. Therefore, he's a generous and gracious man. Love, he gave up what was rightfully his. It was a risky and costly decision, but it was the gospel-centered response. Okay, what does he do? He self-impoverishes so that the conflict can be resolved. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound exactly like what Jesus Christ did for us? He impoverished himself so that we might enjoy a blessing. He was generous and humble, Philippians 2 says. He set aside his rights to demand the throne so that he could, on the cross, pay the price for our sin. And so I think there's some degree of learning of love, the supernatural fruit of the Spirit. This is not emerging from Abraham's flesh. This is him remembering the promises of God and acting in accordance with them. And I think the other thing that is, is, is key in this text is the word faith. Why is Abraham so generous? Because he trusted God who had made all of this available. He trusted the unseen God to take care of the things that are seen and because of that trust in the unseen God, Abraham's life is changed in such incredible and powerful ways. Why did he endure the risk? He had a faith that was so great that he knew he did not need to protect the blessing of God. And folks, when we come to a place like that, our lives are going to change. When we realize that, the, realize that the promises of God are yes and amen, and that I don't have to live to protect those promises, it will make me an incredibly generous person. Because I trust Him. Okay? When our daughters were younger, our, 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 we have three daughters, my daughter Jessica had an interesting habit at Christmas time. And I remember one year specifically that just captured our attention and caused us to laugh. I don't know if we have a picture of it, but I will never forget the day. She's opening her presents, and as she opens her presents, she's, she's sitting on the floor with the legs out in front of her, and she starts stuffing all of her gifts underneath of her legs. 
thinking to yourself, that's kind of kind of strange. Okay? Started kind of interrogating her. You know, Jesse, what's going on? What? Why are you putting the gifts under your legs? Okay? Well, the answer was, well, I don't want my sister to get my gifts. Okay? What was she saying? I don't trust them. I don't, I'm not going to let my gifts out there when I can put them under here where I can protect them. And so her, her behavior that day was being driven by a fear and by a lack of faith and trust in her sisters. Okay? It's, and isn't that what often we're doing? We, we don't trust God, so we tend to defend our own turf because we're not willing to give it over to God. Abraham is, what is he? He's completely open-handed. He's not clenching at the promise of God. He's saying a lot. This is the blessing of God in my life that is undeserved. It's grace that has caused me to love. And by faith, I'm trusting him. And so I'm not, does Abraham have to, have to make the promises his? The answer at, at many levels is no. God promised him those things. God's going to fulfill those promises. Abraham doesn't need to worry. And what does it produce? It produces this incredible, miraculous, supernatural generosity. Lot, can you imagine if you're Lot? This has to be stunning. The grace of God is affecting Abraham. He's refusing to trust in the blessings. He's keeping his trust fixed in God. And I think what we could say is something like this. My humble generosity and graciousness in my relationship with others is a good indicator of my faith in God. And in the material realm, here's the way it works out. Proverbs 19, 17. It says, he who gives to the poor lends to who? He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. You think about that. Why would I be generous towards needy people? Because the person who gives to the poor is giving to who? Is lending to who? God. And the implication of the text is this. He's storing it up in heaven and will pay back for those services with affirmation, with approval. And that's what Abraham, in a sense, he's thinking so much about the future that it's liberating him in the present to be a man who is incredibly generous. He's not hiding his gifts under his legs. He's putting them out there where if other people need them, they can take them. And I think the other thing we learned through this response of Abraham is that peace is costly. Peace is costly. read that verse to you from 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. We through his poverty become rich. And when we become rich in God, what happens? It produces a gracious generosity that flows over all of our circumstances, all of our responses, as we seek to love others. Abraham believed that God would care for him no matter what. And it transformed his life. How did Lot choose? Okay, how did Lot choose? Look at verse 10. It says, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of Jordan was well watered like the garden of God. Like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose, and I think this is key, Lot chose for himself 
the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east, and the two of them parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan. Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. How did Lot choose? Okay, if Abraham chose by grace, faith, and love, how did Lot choose? Lot chose simply based upon the immediate and temporal, didn't he? He looked around, saw the best well-watered land, and made a beeline for it without any regard for the blessing and benefit of his uncle Abraham. So how does Lot choose? He walks by sight. He seeks no word from God, no direction from God. And then a couple of ominous statements come out. It was like the garden of God. But what was the garden of God really like? The garden of God was, as you read through Genesis, a beautiful place. But it was also a place of temptation. Okay, that in the mind of the Israeli, of the Jew that was reading this text, thinking about the garden of God would be that was the place of blessing where Satan entered in and brought destruction. Okay, so it would have this sense of, of an overtone, if you will. Why did he choose it? He chose it because it was well watered. It was like Egypt. It had a river running through it, a place where blessing could be experienced and enjoyed. That's why he chose it, walking by sight. It was like the land of Egypt. Another interesting statement, a picture that has overtones. Egypt was a place, they had the Nile River running right through it. That's exactly, in a sense, what Lot had, this smaller river, the Jordan, running past the land of Israel. It was well watered. It was a favorable location for him to do business in. And so Lot, based upon that, chooses it. But he says it was like the land of Egypt. That is that it was a place of blessing, but it was also a place where compromise took place. It was a place where Israel was tempted to go back to. That's how the Jews would read this text. So Abraham is walking by sight. And then you find this fascinating statement at the end of verse 10. This was before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, temporary blessings, hidden dangers are wrapped up in this statement. Why? Lot is simply driven by what is best for himself. That is the driving thought of his life. And I think we could safely say this. His decision, according to verse 11 through 13, was a selfish decision. He expresses no regard for Abraham, no regard for Abraham's status, no regard for Abraham's age and position as, as his uncle. He chose what was most beneficial for himself. And I think... I think the last part of verse 13 is, if you will, or, or really 12 and 13, Lot lived among the cities of the plain. He lives in the region. He's in the vicinity, and he pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were exceedingly, or were wicked, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Okay, what's going on here? Okay, I think the indication is that it was morally unwise for Lot to put his family in that specific situation. He lives in the vicinity of people who were known as high-handed sinners. He was not attracted there by the mission that he could accomplish. He was attracted there by the material benefits that he could acquire. Okay, the driving thought in his life, what's in it for me? How will that affect my choices? It will cause me in conflict to make selfish choices that are about me getting what I want out of circumstances. He does not seek God when he gets there. 
There's no indication that he builds an altar there. He is driven purely by economic considerations. How will this advance my life? How will this improve my circumstances and make my family life better? While at the same time, he was putting his family, as we'll see later, in serious jeopardy. He chose the immediate over the future. Okay, why? Because I think this text indicates very clearly, Lot envied their fortune and wanted their blessings. Okay, he looked, he saw what they had, and he said, that's what I want, Abraham. And so he moves far to the east, virtually out of the land of Canaan. Chooses the immediate over the future. And he gave no thought to the effect of the world on his family. He carelessly, in this setting, because he's driven by material things, exposes his family to long-term risk in order to have short-term gain. 14, beginning of the verse, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Which is what? It's a reiteration of the promise that had attracted Abraham by God's direction to this place. What is God doing? Okay, Abraham has just took a stunning risk, put the whole land before Lot. Lot chose what he wanted. Abraham got the substandard land. Okay, that's what he's left with. Land that needs irrigation, a lot of tilling, a lot of work. Because Lot chose the trickier land morally, but the better land materially. After Lot departed, how do you think Abraham feels? Okay, how do you think Abraham feels? Lot goes, he chooses the best of the lot in terms of the land. Abraham is left with the leftovers, if you will, the remainder. What's in the thought of a believer after such sacrifice? Seriously. You make a big decision to sacrifice for the cause of Christ, to step out and do something. And in your mind, you, you get this little bit of a tick. Okay, this little bit of a fear. Was that wise? You ever had that happen? Step out and face it. Okay, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to approach this situation. I'm going to deal with this situation. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, is that wise? My, here's what I think. I think after Abraham makes this decision in his mind, he's thinking, okay, that was not fiscally prudent. I didn't make the smart decision, but the question for Christians isn't did I make the smart decision. The question is, did I make the right decision? How does God feel about the call that was made in this situation? Because in this story, Lot certainly seems to be not the loser, but the winner, right? Isn't that the way it looks? He got the best. And Abraham's herdsmen are probably thinking, what are you thinking? Why did you let him do that? You know what a scoundrel he is? You know how devious he is? Why would you do something like that? Abraham's response is, this is very beautiful in this text. The overall thought of the text is this. God has already promised all of this to Abraham. At best, Lot is a temporary resident. At very best. Why? God already promised it to him. And by faith, he's acting, saying, I can be generous with God's provisions because he has promised to give it all to me eventually. On paper, Abraham had made a bad decision and he needs an affirmation from God. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are. Look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. 
all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring for how long? The enormous promise. He says, Abraham, all of that I will give you forever. Even the part that you're looking at that Lot took. Okay, because the promises of God are what? They're yes and amen. Okay, God's going to stay faithful to his word. Abraham is being generous with the resources that God has given him. And so God says two things to him. He says, Abraham, look up. And what is God doing? Abraham looks up and he looks at all of it, north, south, east, and west. And God comes to him and he says, I'm going to affirm your act of faith to resolve this conflict. And what does God do? God reassures Abraham of his plans and purposes for Abraham's life. Abraham's faith freed him to be gracious, not grasping. Okay, his faith, his trust in God freed him from the normal way of living. And that is to, to grasp at, to get the most out of life that I can get. It liberated him to be generous and gracious towards those that were seeking. In a sense, in Lot's case, I believe, to harm him. His generous faith is rewarded by the presence of God and by the promise of God. And then God says to him in verse 17, he says, Abraham, walk through the land. Walk through all of it. Why does God say that to Abraham? In a sense, I believe what he's saying to Abraham is, go claim that land. As you're walking through that land, you're demonstrating that God has given this to me. You're by faith claiming the promise of God that he's given. And so Abraham goes and he walks through all of the land, God affirming his presence and his promise to this man who has acted graciously when it was undeserved. Go to all the land that I am giving you. And then I want you to notice Abraham's response to the powerful presence of God. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, and we talked about this last week. I just reiterate again because it's going to come up a couple of times. What is Abraham doing? He's building a place where God is exalted in his life. Why? He's not concerned about the material things. His heart is focused on exalting and glorifying God. He's finding a place of worship so that he can be protected from the forces that are present in the land. What are they? The Canaanites and Perizzites are in the land. They're there. And what is Abraham doing? In the midst of that place where there's struggle, he's erecting a place where the name of God will be known. If you will, this is a bit of a church. A place where God will be exalted. That's what we come here to do this morning. And here's what I pray. I pray that your heart this morning was encouraged as we sung praises together. You're reminded of the presence and power and grace of God in your life. We listen to the word of God and we learn lessons from a man like Abraham. The man of faith who is an exemplar for all of us. An illustration of how we can respond to seasons of conflict in our life. At critical times, here's what I believe. God will meet us. To sustain us in the face of impossible circumstances. Abraham responds graciously and generously to this test. God comes in and says, Abraham, I want to affirm the decision that you made. That was the right decision. And it is a beautiful, beautiful picture. The response of Abraham is this. He falls on his knees and worships God. This reassurance that he's receiving is undeserved. And unearned, it is a picture of God's grace. And it reminds me an awful lot of Matthew chapter 19. The disciples are moving towards the end of their three-year time of ministry with Jesus, their season of training. A rich man comes to Jesus. 
He says, Lord, uh, tell me what I need to do to have the kingdom of God. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've done that. Next thing Jesus says is what? Sell everything you have and then come and follow me. Response from the rich young ruler. He was very wealthy in material possessions. And he went away. How? Sad. Which sparks a question from Peter. Okay? The question from Peter is this. Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We've been gracious and generous. We've relinquished control of material things. What will there be for us? In other words, what blessings are going to come to us? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for My sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. See, what is God saying to Abraham? I will give this to you forever. What does he mean? Okay, what he means is that Abraham will have a place with God in the place of God's blessing and promise forever. These temporal losses are just that. The gain that Abraham has coming to him is eternal. Peter's question, we've left everything and followed you. Have we been duped? Was that stupid? Was that foolish? Was that short-sighted? Jesus responds and says, no, Peter, no. I'm going to give you in the future a hundred times as much. Peter would later say in 1 Peter 3.13, but in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, free from conflict, and in the glorious and blessed presence of God. The better way to resolve conflict is self-renunciation. The same thing that Jesus did on the cross. When he dealt with the conflict that our sin posed, he came and gave himself to pay the price for our sin, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The best way to resolve conflict and strife when it emerges over money or other things is what? It's the way of self-renunciation. It's the way of gracious humility. It's the way that seeks to see things put back in the way that they should be. Another question that may emerge out of this text is, does God love you? Does he love you? Abraham would say something like this to you if you ask him that question. I think Abraham would say, if he loved me and blessed me, and you know my track record, then he can love you, and he can bless you, and he can work in your life in spite of the history and baggage that you or I may have. Because his blood cleanses us from all sin. God loved, blessed, and protected this repentant sinner. And folks, please remember this. This is the, the common part of our story with Abraham is not that we're talking about large portions of land and having genealogies you know, off of our name and Jesus comes. No, we're not talking about all that. What's common between us and Abraham? Why is the story recorded? Why is he the man of faith that we look up to? Because he was just like us. He lived in flesh. He knew what it was to fail. But he also knew what it was to experience the grace of God poured out on his life. And so maybe you come here this morning saying, could God love someone like me? Abraham's response would be, he liked me. He loved me. He can love you. Oh, well, what about this and this and this in my life? Abraham would say to you, that's nothing. 
It's nothing compared to the stupid things that I did. If He loved me, He'll love you. If He rescued me and blessed me, He'll rescue you and bless you and give you hope and a future all undeserved. And what will that do? That will transform you into a generous and gracious, humble person who learns how to resolve seasons of strife in their life. He loves you. And I think the thing that's moving Abraham more than anything else is an understanding that the ultimate blessings of God are not bound in time. Folks, flip back to the beginning. Why are people buying the lottery tickets? Why are people gambling? Because they're hoping that they're going to hit it big. And when they do, it's going to bring them everything they're looking for in life. Contrary to the truth. Contrary to the truth. The greatest blessing that you can have in your life is to know God and to love Him and to serve Him. The greatest blessing you can have from God is to know that He has rescued you from the consequences of your sin and you have nothing to do with that rescue. It is all of His grace. And you can fall before your altar. We can fall together at this church and say, God, thank you for what you have done in our lives. Let us be people of grace and humility and generosity. Because the future is in God's hands. I mean, ultimately for Abraham, what did he know? He knew that the land of promise was his. And even though it seemed like people were legging into his promise, he knew that it was not to be secured by his effort. They were secured by the grace of God. May the grace of God, the abundant blessings that we look forward to and that we experience today, change us and make us humble, gracious, generous people as we respond to seasons of conflict over material things or over just life itself at times. May we, like Abraham, say, my goal in this situation is that quarreling and strife would cease so that God's blessing may be enjoyed and experienced by his children. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truths that emerge out of these passages that we're looking at in the story of Abraham. They encourage our hearts and they give us hope. Because just in the back of our mind is this thought, if God could use Abraham, then God can use me. If God could bless Abraham, then God can bless me. And Father, I pray this morning, if there is someone here who has never trusted in the shed blood of Christ,